Welcome to the Serve Conscious Podcast, where people and companies can learn the inner game of service and tap into the fullest power of the service opportunity. So join me and let's master the service mindset together and up-level service the world over. And I encourage you to check out my partner, the Institute for Organizational Mindfulness, which is on a mission to help people and companies to incorporate mindfulness into their culture and raise performance, efficiency, general happiness, and everything that we want from going to work. So link is in the show notes for you to go deeper into that as well as the mindful service movement. All right, let's get started. All right, friends, so excited for the dish I'm about to serve you today. You know, it hasn't even been that long since I have aimed the Serve Conscious mission at organizational change, and already the universe has showered incredible support on top of that decision because one of the guiding lights of my own journey to service mastery agreed to have a really incredible conversation with me, which uh, recorded uh, just a short time ago, and I'm going to play it for you now. So I'm going to talk a bit about Ron Kaufman and why he is someone you need to know about if you care about service as much as I do, or even a fraction as much as I do. He wrote a book called Uplifting Service, which has been a definite guiding light for my service geekery. It looks at service as something meaningful in a way that I think few others are. The level of detail that book offers in terms of how much you can refine your service game as an organization, all the little dimensions of it, and also the potential of service to just bring meaning and fulfillment to everyone's lives, everyone in the organization and everyone that organization serves is ultimately the name of the game in that book. It's not just about the bottom line. So insofar as I'm constantly looking at cranking all the knobs to optimize the inner experience of service, this book and his many other books will reveal how to optimize the total system of service so that you don't even give great service. You give extraordinary service, like service that has no ceiling of possibility. Like it can be driven towards excellence, just as Apple drives their interfaces towards greater and greater levels of perfection. Maybe as the Japanese would look at engineering, basically anything, right? Japanese culture of excellence and mastery. That's the kind of service Ron Kaufman is a thought leader of, and that is how he works with companies today. Anyone that wants to take their service to that level, both externally as their brand, as their service brand, but also internally as their culture, he is the guy. And he's been a wonderful mentor to me as well as I've continued to crystallize what I can offer in that space as well. So huge gratitude to have Mr. Kaufman in my life, and also to have this wonderful conversation with him. One other thing I want to point out about this conversation, it might be a small thing, but it means a lot to me. And if you listen to the interview, this was recorded on Zoom, and yet the audio quality is actually good. (laughs) It's actually pretty good. And there's probably no difference in quality between my voice 
and Ron's voice. And that is because he had great audio equipment. He recorded from a home studio and delivered super crisp, polished (laughs) vocals. And I think this really speaks to his book. I remember reading so much about the importance of the details of how you present yourself. Showing that you care can often be packaged in tiny little things like that. Like saying, hey, I care about the quality of your show. I'm going to take the time to plug into my studio so that I sound really good. And it's probably the best (laughs) Zoom recording quality I've ever boasted. And of course, it came from someone who cares about service this much. So I just thought I'd point that out. And remember to stay tuned for the show notes so you can know how to contact Ron in the future if you ever need to. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Ron Kaufman. All right. Welcome to the Serve Conscious Podcast. I am so excited to uh, have a good friend of mine and an incredible service visionary, Ron Kaufman here, who wrote the book Uplifting Service, which I consider absolutely in the canon of service books. It's required reading if you're listening to this show. So uh, really great to have a voice given to it and really excited to tap into your wisdom today. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, Ron. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Excellent. So I just wanted to uh, launch right into it and talk about your own um, journey of service and, and how it came to mean so much to you. Is there kind of like a flashbulb memory or just like this really lucid time where service revealed its power and importance to you? There, there were two times. One was in college, I was the founding captain of the ultimate Frisbee team at Brown University. And my physical body is such that I'm not going to be competing in any other major sport, except maybe lightweight wrestling. And that wasn't my thing. It's much more of a playful kind of guy. And the role of being the captain and the coach and the organizer and the scheduler and making sure that everybody had food in the car and we'd get to the right place at the right time and set up the field, and it was all to play a game, was service at a more intimate personal level. And that just gave me a lot of joy back because of the pleasure of play and the spirit of the team and the other teams we played with. But there was also one particular moment I was visiting in Italy during my college years when I was studying overseas. And I had a Frisbee on my finger and I was walking through the market areas. And of course, a bright orange Frisbee wasn't very common in Italy at that time. And so there was a lot of people noticing. And I went to a park, which is a common thing I would do when I was traveling. And I'd throw the Frisbee out into a group of children and then just kind of sit back and wait until one of them picked it up. And then they try to figure out how it worked. And they saw how it flew there, but it wouldn't necessarily fly well. And that would open the space for me to go teach. And there and I run in, I show them how to hold and throw and, you know, flip their wrist. And there was one little boy who was trying to play with the others. And at a certain moment, he sort of awkwardly reached for the Frisbee and dropped it, or he threw it, didn't go well. And he suddenly retreated. And went just like off the field and sat down at the base of a tree, like kind of nestling up against the tree for comfort. And I saw this happening and and I went over to him just basically to say, it's okay, come on, let's give it a go. And as I put my hand down to kind of not embrace him, but just to, you know, make contact, I felt under the leg of his, the pants leg, a brace. And I realized that this was a young boy who had probably had polio or something like that and was therefore out playing with his colleagues, but was the awkward one. And I didn't speak Italian, but I knew enough to say, ah, 
tu es spécial, which means you're special. And he turned and he looked at me and his eyes just opened up with the sense of having been seen compassionately. And when you ask about a light bulb moment, that was that was that moment for me. Wow. You know, your story with service, I guess, would confront a lot of people's conditioning around what service actually is. You know, your journey, if I'm right, sounds like it was membership in a community, contributing to a community. And also service was was teaching, mentoring and giving people an incredible sense of hope and joy and support as human beings. And wanting each and every person to see that they could contribute in some way. And that has a lot to do with organizing and managing a certain kind of mood. And it has a lot to do with acknowledging what people's capabilities and their talents and their uniquenesses are. Yeah, and I want to dig into that today since you have been uh, helping companies all over the world, uh, especially, I guess, in Singapore, where you are currently based, which is like an incredibly blossoming uh, service and business industry. And um, I want to talk about the work you've done with companies transforming their, their service game and generally what you have found to be, I guess, most crucial for, for the shifts that need to be made. And I want to talk first about, I guess, like real service, authentic service. I guess you could you could set the protocols, you know, you can give them the scripts and the training, but I guess someone has to actually care about serving and reading your book. We're talking about actually creating a culture where employees want to, so to speak. And that might even sound radical for a lot of people. Like, don't we just make them? <laughs> so um, what are the kind of wrong ways companies can go about, you know, cultivating this and what are, what are some, some of the right ways? Well, one of the legacy carryovers, I would say from the era of abundant, um, almost raging capitalism was the underlying assumption that if you pay people more, they'll be more motivated. And so one of the mistakes that I see organizations do, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your people very well when you can, is tying financial incentives to the delivery of a higher quality of service. For example, if you get a higher customer satisfaction score or customer experience score or customer loyalty rating, then you'll get more money. And the problem with that is that you're then tying the financial to the intention. And if you get into hard economic times and you have to pull back on that bonus or that extra marginal variable compensation, people go, why should I do it then? That's the mistake side. The, the side that we've seen work so well is that when you pull the voice of the customer authentically receiving the service and sharing their experience of it, how it affected them, how it made them feel, what it enabled them to do, the problem it helped them to solve, that that's a human being reflecting back to the service provider and saying, this was wonderful for me in their own words. Well, Hearing that as a service provider or a team of service providers, uh, you, can't, you can't pay for that. that because that brings an emotional well-being to the team itself. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but I, you know, I've been reading a lot about why violence has declined worldwide, you know, and why the global economy has helped facilitate that. And you're less likely to want to do violence or go to war with a country where you feel like you know them, like as human beings, and you can't dehumanize them. And I find what you're talking about here is you're humanizing customers. You're you're connecting us with greater right. details of them as human right. beings. So when you do that, people are maybe more likely to want to help them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's service is creating value for someone. And when something is valuable to someone, it's because it contributes in some way to their well-being. And that could be financial well-being. You made the money, saved the money, helped them get value for money. It could be some other kind of quantitatively uh, trackable well-being, you, time, speed, uh, performance, um, you, you know, certain product quality. But it can also be emotional well-being. You gave them a sense of feeling seen, feeling recognized, appreciated, heard, cared about. It could be relational. You made them feel like uh, they belong, like they're wanted, like they're connected in some way. So the action that we take that creates that experience, that's what makes the action valuable. And that's what service is. Yeah. And um, you talk about, you know, going above and beyond. And it sounds like it involves that. You know, like there's the basic procedural thing you can help someone with. You could perform service as a function, right? I need this tech tech problem solved and you could solve it and they'll walk away relatively satisfied. But then of course, there's these deeper human boxes you can tick where they actually feel maybe like touched or, or moved. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? These like, there's the surface level problem and there's like deeper human things too. You know, a good example of this is some of the um, standards behind the scenes for the Apple Store Genius Bar, where if you find yourself there, it's because you have an issue. <laughs> you, you know, it's not something you could just solve using watching somebody's YouTube video. You end up at the Genius Bar. And these guys know everything. They're going to be, and gals, they, you know, they're going to fix your problem. They're going to answer your question. That's, that's, that's a given. That's sort of the functional, as you were saying. But then there's two other standards. One is that they're going to look at whatever it is your situation is. And they're going to find some way to point out something that you're currently doing or that you have that's kind of cool. That is, they're going to give a positive stroke to you and in some way. I'll give you some examples in a moment. But then the other is that they're going to find a way to teach you something that you didn't already know without taking on the role of being the teacher and thereby putting you in the role of being the student. So let me give you examples of both of those. I'm not a Mac user. So I'm on a PC, but I have an iPhone. So there, of course, came a moment where, I, hey, how does this work with that? And how do I da, da 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 So there I am at the Genius Bar, and I'm the only guy in the whole store that's got this clunky Lenovo black laptop. I'm feeling like the dinosaur, you know? And everybody else got their cool MacBooks. And we're in there, and we're looking at the file, and he goes, oh, I really like the way you organize your file structure in the folders. I mean, what is it? I mean, what, what, what? But the reality is the way I name my photographs does make sense because I use a YYMMDD preface for everything. And so by date, it falls naturally and not everybody does that. And he goes, yeah, it's really cool. What's that got to do with my solving my problem? What's that got to do with me being in an Apple store? What's that got to do with the fact that I'm not on a Mac? Nothing. What did it do in that moment? It created a little emotional connection. And then the teaching, the way they do it is like, we'll be in there somewhere and he goes, hey, by the way, do you see that? Or do you know what happens if you click on this? Or we're over here and, hey, let me show you how that one works. And so you don't even realize, I didn't realize that I was being taught something. But every single time I leave the genius bar, I got my problem solved. I got my question answered. I feel good, recognized as a person, acknowledged, and I learned something I didn't know before. That is huge. You know, like people need to feel like they belong somewhere they go. And most of the time they go out and they get service. They're in a strange land. And they probably feel uncomfortable in some way. So doing something that makes people feel like they belong, like here you are, an outsider using a 
non-Mac. And he actually did something to make you feel like you actually belong there. And that's, right, uh, I think right. that's just very special. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I wanted to kind of, I guess, talk about how to actually, besides just teaching the protocols here, because that people could follow a protocol and do this, or they could also learn how to love it. And you could usually tell when someone like loves service. And maybe a lot of people think that, you know, especially with the sort of idea about talent, there's naturally talented people. There's naturally mm. people that don't know how. There's people that naturally know how to serve, who, who are just born to serve. They're nurturing, they're loving. And there's those that don't, they just hate people. <laughs> but can you actually teach love of service where you're actually in this process and you're loving it? Yeah, I think, um, Stefan, you and I are two of many in a community in the world who recognize that to educate someone about the fundamentals of creating value by serving other people, about taking care out of the domain of healthcare or philosophy and bringing it into human life, taking service out of the background, listening of the waiter in the restaurant, that's what service is, and saying, no, 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 we're all in service. Then teaching that to young people is not part of the standard educational curriculum almost anywhere in the world, except perhaps tourism and hospitality courses. And, and even then those tend to come later after primary and secondary education. But I've seen young people, 12, 13, 14 years old, learn the principles that we teach at corporate level because we've had the opportunity to go in and work in schools and they pick it up that fast. Now, once they understand, okay, what is service? Taking action that creates value. Okay, so what matters here? The value that I create. Wait a minute. The value I create is not the action that I took. It's the other person's experience of the action that I took. Ha, huh, I need to get curious about the other person. Wait a minute. I discovered something. Different people value different things. Ha, huh, then my action needs to be different. Oh, you know what? And, and it becomes a project for learning. Now, once people are enabled with that kind of a tool set, and they get to work with it recurrently in exercises and workshops and classes. Then they develop a skill set. And that's what leads to the mindset of, I can do this. Or I'm in a situation and I see things, but I see it differently because I have a background set of understanding. And to me, the tragedy that we have in the world today is that our educational systems are not making that mandatory for young people. So what are we doing? STEM. Science, technology, engineering, math, you know, go out there and be a coder. But what about being a carer? <laughs> what about being a service provider? It's like, yeah, well, maybe it depends on what industry you get into. I think we're, you know, heading in a direction where, and we're seeing it with COVID, just how important it suddenly is to go, wait a minute, who actually does care? And what do I actually care about? And who actually is going to help take care of me? And I don't just mean if I'm sick. I mean, like the well-being of my family and my life. So service is who we are as creatures. We're the species that need to serve one another to stay alive in a way that's different than any other animal. But it's bizarre that we don't teach it. So when you say, are there some people born with it? Yeah, some people are more inclined that way. Some are more technical or mathematical. But I think everybody has it in the inherent nature of being human. Yeah, it's a fascinating concept. Like we have, like it's natural. It's so natural. It feels so natural. And yet we have to learn it. Like we have to aggressively almost relearn it or like recapture this, this natural humanity of ours. It's an opportunity. That's for sure. Yeah. And so you talked about uh, before, you know, companies 
finding the wrong or not less effective ways of rewarding people for service. But we are people that need rewards. We're fundamentally reward-seeking creatures. That is another natural thing, I guess, about being human. And we need to feel like we accomplished something. We, and we also need to be like acknowledged for our growth. And actually, right. you're talking you're talking to someone who has not considered service natural for them. I came from uh, food and beverage, um, from hospitality, from fine dining. It's not love of service service is, is drudgery it's grueling there and i had to i had to discover it and learn it myself so if i were to work at like the dream company um what would they be doing do you think to help mm. make this growth process rewarding to support my, me discovering that i can do it and that it is gratifying yeah i think it's interesting when you say reward to me the most powerful emotional version of reward is recognition and so that's where cultures I've seen could do a lot more than they're doing. Again, there's legacy practices, employee of the month. I mean, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a way of acknowledging human beings for their effort, for the outcomes they produce, for the ideas that they try, for the, if you will, natural talent that they have, for the relationships that they cultivate with colleagues as well as with customers, for the improvements that they participate in bringing about within the organization. I've heard a lot of leaders say, well, that's their job. Oh, I see. So then you're reducing it to they've got the job, they got the position, they got the paycheck. So therefore, you're expecting all of that. Yeah, but wait a minute. This is not a machine you installed that has a running cost and an operating expense. This is a human being. And what you want to do is arouse and awaken their emotional desire to do a great job and exercise that every day with a team of other people who are doing the same. Now we're talking building culture. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now we're getting into the human stuff, which is unbelievable. Like how much it can lack from service uh, sometimes, and especially as you scale it. Uh, so to speak, but you've been working with companies at scale that they've somehow managed to scale humanity. And when a lot of people just think, oh, you just just replace it with layers of technology and, you know, zombified employees kind of pushing buttons, but you can actually scale humanity. So um, how can you actually how can you actually do this? Like as your company grows, how can you bring all of these the warmth with it, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, the question at the heart of this is how do the human service providers and the development and implementers of service technology work together in a way that creates for the customer a authentic service experience that gives them both the emotional sense, even though they didn't have, and the, and the, the, the functional outcome, even though they didn't have as much face-to-face -face time with the humans as they might have in the past without the technology. And so there, there are three aspects of this that I see. One is that those who design the actual interface for the user with the technology need to be thinking way beyond the code and way beyond the, if you will, UX, like is it the fastest or the least confusing, et cetera, to what is the emotional experience for somebody when they're in that interface? And, and there's a, you know, there's a playful example I like to point out. They've since solved it, but I, there was a time when Microsoft was under previous leadership where if you typed the wrong password into the web-based Outlook email, you know, you put in your username, you just made a mistake, I'm putting in your password, that the screen would immediately pop up and say, user error. 
we received a bad request. And I, <laughs> we, who the heck is we? Not me. Oh, you guys behind the screen. Okay. Received, I guess I must have been the sender if you got it, a bad negative assessment request. Well, technically, yes, putting in a password and pressing submit is a request, but none of that is the language I use as a user. <laughs> okay. And I don't even think of myself as a user anyway. I'm a customer. I want to get my email. At the same time, Gmail, identical screen, if you were using Gmail and you typed in the wrong password, the screen popped up and said, oops, we're sorry. Let's try again. Exact same situation. Completely different emotional orientation for the experience of the customer slash user. Okay, that, that's one. So design. The second is that we're onboarding people into technological and digital environments like, you know, at hyperspeed. And people of my age are not digital natives. We're what's called the era of digital immigrants where we all started with pencils and papers and now, you know, we got into our tablets and now you're, and things are just completely getting more and more automated. But it doesn't mean that the comfort or the fluidity or the familiarity with a digital environment is native to this group of customers. Now, by the way, I'm talking about anybody who's over 40. And there's a lot of wealth accumulated in the older echelons of society. So, you know, banks want to migrate you and healthcare wants to migrate you and everybody wants to migrate you into electronic records which is, makes sense, but that doesn't mean just because you have a phenomenal interface that it's going to be easy for that customer. Here's where a human can come in. Now, what is a human going to do? Sit there and show you how to do every click? No, they're going to provide the emotional encouragement. Hi, what's your name? Great to see you. How long have you been one of our customers? Ready to give this a try? Don't worry. I'm right here with you. I think you can do this. We haven't even started yet. And she's saying, I think you can do this. And then as I go along, what do you want? That That's right. Good. Okay. Yep. Uh, what? Try the other one. Good. You got it. What are you talking? I mean, this is not, this is human encouraging a human. And if you get one or two sessions of that, then you don't need that gal anymore because now I've been migrated. Okay. So that's the second area is making sure you provide enough human interface to get people onto the new platform with an emotional sense of well being. And the third, of course, is when there's a problem. Because when there's a problem, the last thing you want to do is go searching online to try to figure out the answer to that problem. If it's very specific, for example, to your account, you want to be able to hit a button, boop, somebody pops up right there who can see from the technology where you've been, what you've tried, what isn't working, and is there to help. Best example I've seen with that lately is in Japan in the subways, highly automated, huge digital interface, like a whole wall. But if you're there and something isn't working and you're trying one time, no, two time, no. The moment you try, start trying the third time, there's a panel on that wall that slides open and there's a human being who leans out and is right there with you at the keypad, knows what you've been trying to do, helps you figure it out and then disappears and closes the panel again. You don't even know that they're there, but of course they're there just when you need it. Love it. Love it. That's great. Is that actually been, is that like your idea or like, um, no, 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 no. I mean, the, this is... With the uh, medical records, with the, uh, with like someone being there to help people along medical records. Is this like a hypothetical technology or does it actually exist? I, I, I wouldn't, um, propose that I'm the inventor of it. Mm -hmm. Does it exist? Absolutely. Oh, it does. Okay. Absolutely.
Like emotional support. I love that. Like click coaching, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's funny because um, talking about the human element, because I think, I don't know, I don't know if you agree, but I have found our culture has a bias towards design. Like, you know, oh, let's fix a service problem. We'll fix it with design. I don't know if you've heard the podcast episode uh, on Amotanashi on the Malcolm Gladwell pod podcast. And mm -hmm. I love him and I love his podcast. But he, but I thought I was going to learn about the Japanese culture of service, which I find infinitely fascinating. And they're talking about how Amotanashi works at Lexus and how like that that service culture is built into a Lexus. But all they talked about was how beautifully it was designed. And it just it just means design excellence. And I was like, it doesn't mean design excellence because when you walk into a bar in Japan or a tea house or a retail sh shop and you feel like somebody that you're speaking to is really happy to have you there and uh, accepts you exactly as you as they are as you are that is not a design feature that is a humanity feature so yeah how can do you, do you think do you think that we're a little design focused in the world of service or do you think things are balancing out now well i would say that you know when you said that's not a design feature I, I look at it like it's part of the design of the culture. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. this reverence for the customer. It's this arrival of a human's way of being into our space. And if I'm the designer who's so passionate about our space, more than passionate about your arrival, in our space, then you've skewed too far in the direction of the proud design. But a brilliant designer knows that the purpose of the design is to engage with and for the community of humans. So, for example, one of my mentors speaks frequently about how the discipline of engineering and the way it's taught in universities has forgotten that engineering is a discipline of care. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Well, why would you be trying to engineer something in the first place, except that you are trying to address or resolve or improve something? Why do you want to address or resolve and improve something because of the impact or the consequences or what it enables for the human community? And yet what happens in engineering is, define the problem. And so once you define it as what's the problem we're here to solve, where did the human go? And so reconnecting, you know, brilliant designers know that what they're designing for is the human experience with the design. Where you get into problems like Don Norman's book called The Design of Everyday Things, and he points out how many things were designed in the workshop but without the human, you know, attending to it. And then what happens when you bring the human experience to the design, the design gets better. Brilliant. Yeah. Because um, I guess in a perfectly holistic service um, system, there's nothing that gets left out. Everything matters. Design right. matters. Right. Like it's just, it's all one thing. And actually you also talk about in your book, how everyone is serving. Everyone needs to look at their work right. as service. And so if everyone's serving, then that's how you get a holistic system. Which like is that, why the internal service, cultural environment and the external experience of the culture of the company and their world, that's holistic. That's got to be done together, not this and that. 
All right, powerful stuff we're talking about here. Um, I guess I want to, I guess, switch gears a bit and talk about um, talk about the human again. I have a bias towards that because that's my my area of expertise, and I just love the psychology of service and the struggles of. I don't love the struggles of service, but I love working with them and helping people with them. And you know, a, a lot of I think things that plague service professionals is this feeling that they cannot be themselves, like they're part of a you know this system that has to involve total compliance and that they have to hold back so much of themselves in order to be of service and not bring any of their own individual value. So um, is there a way of, of like walking the line in terms of uh, how you can kind of put together your service protocols as a company so you can allow people to sort of be themselves as well as remaining, you know, in integrity with what the company uh, wants from their service? Well, yeah, well, let's be super careful that we have to look then at industry and position. I'll give you an example. An air traffic controller. I don't really want the unique nature of their extroverted, enthusiastic personality showing up in the air traffic control conversation. However, I imagine there are certain moments where slipping in Cleared for takeoff. Have a good flight. Have a good flight isn't part of the script. Or register your touchdown. Welcome. That little welcome, not part of the script. <laughs> but <laughs> that may be all the bandwidth that's available within that particular service environment. Now, you get others, high-end luxury dining. You want that waiter's persona to emerge in a way that works for the people who are having dinner. So if they are there and having a very serious and somber conversation, they're doing it over dinner, and this naturally enthusiastic waiter goes in, I don't want that person to think better service will be them experiencing my naturally enthusiastic personality. Better service is going to be me recognizing that my naturally enthusiastic personality needs to adjust dramatically. Why? to calibrate with and align with my customer. Now, once you create that rapport, might there be little openings for a slight expression of that unique personality at just the right moment? Here's the dessert you ordered. I thought you might enjoy having a taste of that other one that you were thinking about. Boop. There's an extra little plate on the side. Said in the most esteemed, respected, you know, almost somber kind of way. Yeah. And um, although I do like the idea of an air traffic controller, just, just, you know, adding a little delight and flair to my landing, maybe using some, you know, rhythmic gymnastics ribbons instead of the usual thing. No, probably not. No, but, probably uh, not. <laughs> But I, I like that idea of understanding, you know, your 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 bandwidth, your boundaries. Yeah. And um, but for me, you know, working in service, it's kind of been a process of understanding how much I don't need to be so attached to who I think I am and who I think I need to like let out, you know, and my whole sense of, oh, this is me and I've got to just be this exuberant, you know, uh no filter person in order to feel like myself. What if myself could be this more fluid, malleable thing. And that's what service kind of reveals. And actually, I feel most like myself when I'm able to adapt, which is kind of this strange thing that happens. Yeah. 
And what you're adapting to is the needs, concerns, interests, bias, prejudices, hopes, fears, dreams of the person you're serving. I wanted to ask you about being human. Does it make sense actually to ask you about kind of letting our individual out, individuality out regarding um, service recovery? So like if something goes wrong, this is maybe a time to be more like of a, a human being, or do you think it's a time to really stick to protocols? I know it's a fairly granular question, but I was always kind of curious about how we can bring more kind of human personality and kind of human to human care as it concerns when something goes wrong and you need to improve the situation. Yeah. When there's a service recovery situation, it's because some standards or expectations were not met. Um, And by the way, sometimes those standards and expectations may not have even been clearly articulated and agreed upon between the customer and the service provider in the first place. They can literally emerge during the delivery of service itself. But however it arises, if there's a service recovery situation, the customer's experience or the internal colleague's experience is one of dramatic drop. Like, this is not a good situation. There's a negative assessment in the space. So then there's three components to a successful recovery in service, and at least two of them involve uh, that individual component. The first, though, is fix the problem. Address the issue. Solve what's incorrect, especially if it's in any way life-threatening or urgent or you know seriously consequential in that manner. Just do the repair. And some people say, well, I fixed it, so that's the end of the recovery. That's nowhere near enough because the human being who experienced the negative impact is a human being. It's not just the problem that emerged that then got solved. And so the second stage is express genuine concern. And that's the authentic human. It's the tone of voice. It's the empathy. It's the committed caring. It's letting them know. I'm a human being over here, knowing that you, a human being over there, experienced some negative consequence. I am genuinely sorry about that that happened or that you had that experience, and I'm here to help address this. Hence, we've taken care of the problem. Now you know that I'm genuinely concerned. But the third, of course, is the opportunity that a service recovery situation presents, which is when someone's expectations drop like that and you recover by solving the problem and say that you really care, you might just get back to where you were, but that doesn't erase the uh, that happened, the drop, the that rocky moment when you're down on the mat, right? And that's the moment to do something unexpected, something extra, something a little more, something surprising. And that doesn't mean giving a bigger discount. It could be something just like you call them the following day and say, hey, I'm just touching base and following up. Did everything work out okay? Great. I'm really glad to hear that. By the way, you know you can reach out anytime you need. Well, what's that got to do with solving the problem? Nothing. The problem's already solved. But what has it got to do with that bit of extra effort towards the person who experienced the drop? All right. Of course, in luxury dining, which you're familiar with, oops, something went wrong. The dessert is on us. Or, you know, I know you bought this bottle of wine, but I thought I'd bring you a taste of that and one that's quite a bit more expensive. But, you know, we'd love to offer you that bottle on the house tonight. Whoa. I mean, all that kind of stuff, you don't build it into the process. You just say, well, there is that third component, which is something extra. And that's where you want the individual to have been sensitive to the customer to design. What is the right something extra that's going to work for that customer? 
And yeah, when you when you wildly exceed expectations, uh, that that drama, like it's not the usual evening. There's a dip and there's a recovery. That's the most memorable. That's your chance to have, to give them the most memorable experience. It's right. like a it's a narrative. There was a low point and there was a rise back to glory, and right. people will remember that much more than a situation that actually went perfectly. If right. you really show up, though, if you really bring it, so uh, right. yeah, really, I think that's. <laughs> Really valuable guidance. So, so thank you so much for that, Ron. I just want to talk about one more thing, maybe take things broader now, because sure. in talking about service, I guess you're just, you're talking about work and I guess it's not always work. Um, but, but for us, I guess it concerns work a lot. And I guess that's what often makes it the most difficult work. Uh, so I guess in this era of work, uh, what, what do you think people are like really looking for? Right. It's interesting when you say, you know, mostly it's work meaning in an occupational environment with a team, there's compensation involved, there's a role, a position, maybe you have a supervisor or manager or a boss, or or you are that person for other people. But just to say, ask any mother whether raising children is also work. And <laughs> you know that this applies across human experience. Yes, the formal work arrangement, I guess. The, there the, you go. <laughs> the, yeah, you go. the capitalistic in work uh, definition. Right, and, and career and job, and public identity, and professional reputation, and therefore ability to uh, apply for and be selected for certain kinds of positions based upon your expertise, your experience, etc. I think that the era in which we live today is, like all eras before it, unprecedented and unique. Ours is in a certain way. We're not a generation that has had to deal with world war. We're not a generation that has had to deal with global depression. We're not a, a, an era that's dealt with things that just prior generations, two, three, four, have been through their version. Ours is an era of a global pandemic. Ours is an era of a certain fragility of the economic system that we've experienced in a series of crises and mini crises. Ours is an era of geopolitical anxiety. Uh, which has a lot to do with China's emergence as such a large force in the world today. And how's the world going to balance and modify that? And all of that is happening in a backdrop of climate change that is of such consequence that we're realizing as humanity, huh, if we just keep doing what we're doing, we didn't handle that one very well. If we just keep battling along, we didn't handle that one very well. And if we just keep thinking that capitalism is the answer without putting constraints and regulation and, and any other concern for social well-being on it, we didn't handle that one very well. So then humanity is sitting here going, what should I do? What kind of work is worth doing? Where should I apply myself? Where should I apply for? And especially the younger generation who are no longer living like mine did with this background story that, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't know if you remember that phrase. First of all, it was always a he. Didn't she have toys? You know, second was the idea that toys was what it was about, which is stuff you don't actually need. Like it's not healthcare. It's not poverty eradication. It's not environmental. I mean, it's just toys. Then there's the idea that the person who has the most toys, like more than you could ever possibly play with by yourself. And then that you win like it was a race. <laughs> so I think today people are going, hold on a second. Maybe it's she who contributes the most to the well-being of others, feels the most fulfilled in the phenomenon of living her life. Oh, okay. Now, I don't have a short soundbite for that, like he who dies with the most toys wins. But I think much, much more of that is what's going on today. 
as life itself and the future of human life looks more unsettled and uncertain. So then I'm not willing to just go to work for the paycheck. Now, if you're a family and you've got a bunch of kids who need to be fed, it may very well be that what you're going to do is go to work for the paycheck. But you're doing it because of the well-being that you're committed to at home by putting food on the table. Right? And you're going to bring a certain kind of enthusiasm. If you're the leader of that company, your job is then to create the kind of cultural environment where that person feels acknowledged, encouraged, appreciated, recognized, and supported. Then they're going to give you the best service for your customers and you can grow together. Powerful call to action indeed. And, and kind of kind of heartening to know that in general, um, in a maybe a culture that was conditioned to kind of look down on service as like a defeat or being low on the totem pole, now people are just becoming more service oriented. That right. now is equated to meaning. Like now my work is meaningful if there is the opportunity to serve in some way. And I, that, that brings me that, hope. And, well, look what you're doing. You, you couldn't do this 20 years ago because podcasting didn't exist. Everybody didn't have mobile in their pocket. You didn't have all the free distribution platforms you're going to be able to access. The technology itself required a complete, you know, recording sound studio. So the world's evolution of design and technology has freed up an entrepreneurial spirit. And to be a successful entrepreneur, what do you have to do? Some action that does what? Creates some value for who? Somebody that's not you, otherwise your business didn't succeed. So I'll, um, I'll pass things over to you now, actually, and uh, just give you a chance to point anyone in any direction uh, you would like. Any projects you're working on now or just where people can find you that you want them sure. to look Sure. Well, for 30 years, I've been the guy developing a whole suite of curriculum and architectural approaches and models for building a sustainable and strong service culture. And the underlying understanding or motivation of this for our clients has been, we want to delight our customers because then our customers will be more loyal and then they're going to come back and they're going to buy more. And at the end of the day, we're going to have a stronger bottom line. Nothing wrong with that in commerce. That, that's how businesses are evaluated as the, the final lagging indicator. But that wasn't really enough for me, Stefan. There was this other driver about why serve that doesn't just have to do with make more money. And so the real why serve is because there is authentic care. And so the reframing or the rebranding, if you will, of Ron has been from just recently, this past year during the COVID era when I had time to really work on it, from New York Times bestselling author, you know, uplifting service, how you can dominate your industry and stand out from the competition to serve, care, love. Well, that doesn't mean we're not doing all the other work. We are, and we're getting really interesting requests from clients to do that kind of work with them. But the serve, care, love has a very different vibration to it. And so I invite your listeners to come to the website because it's been completely redone now and to watch some of the short videos that are on the homepage in which I really make that connection between service and care and talk about what is the future of service in a very turbulent world. And then point them further into whichever pathway they'd like to learn. Excellent. And I will definitely leave that in the show notes. And I really encourage everyone to dig deeper into Ron's amazing mission. So uh, thanks once again for sharing some of that mission with us, Ron. And I'll, uh, I'll let you go now. But thank you. Thank you, Stefan. You'll see when you go to the Meet Ron page on the site at the very top, it says, A life well lived contributes to the well-being of others. And I would say that your podcast is a great example of that. So thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to hear. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ron Kaufman. 
Please check out the show notes for more info on how you can reach him and my partners IOM as well as other episodes of the Serve Conscious podcast. Get on that mailing list so I can shoot you all the new content around the mindful service movement so you can take your inner service game to the next level today. Thank you so much. You have a great day.